Revelation chapter 1. We'll begin right where we left off last week in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now you may recall, if you were here last week, you know that the word Alpha is written out. The word Omega is not. I am the Alpha and the... And in the Greek, it's just the letter for Omega, which is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It would be like us saying, I'm the A, but A would... Well, I don't know, how do you write out A? I guess you really don't. A. But if we had a word for A, as, as in the Greek alpha, it's written out. But the last letter of the Greek alphabet, the Omega, this upside-down horseshoe, sits there at the end of this, or at the beginning of this verse, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. We talked about how it's a, it, it signifies that it stops, the buck stops with Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The buck stops with Jesus. Jesus is the deal. For those of you who are here this morning, Jesus is the issue. He's the focus, the focal point of all our faith. Jesus is also the end without ending. The end without ending, like an unfinished word, like a single letter. The future with Jesus remains endless. The possibilities of knowing Him, the depths of, of plumbing His character, His nature, vast and eternal. And part of what we're going to be doing throughout all eternity is just getting to know Him. Just walking into that relationship and it will never end. The depth is absolutely phenomenal. Gang, I want you to understand something before we go any further tonight. And that's this. If there's one thing a Christian should never, ever be soft on, it's the divine nature of Jesus Christ. That's the one area in our Christian life we should have. No doubt, no question, and certainly not waffle on. Is Jesus God? Is He not? Oh, I don't, I'm not really sure. Hey, Jesus, according to the Bible, is God, is divine, is the Word made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. He is God. He is divine. And that understanding is the focal point, the critical thing in all of Christianity. It is the ground of your faith. It's the foundation. If we don't understand that, we do not understand Christianity. We don't get God if we don't understand that Jesus explained Him, as John tells us in John chapter 1. Jesus is the explanation of who God is. Now there are several different cults who would disagree with that. As a matter of fact, and we've taught this before, what cults tend to do when it comes to Jesus is diminish Him. That's the first sign that you might be talking to someone who's involved with a cult is if they diminish the person of Jesus. Oh, he's not really God. As, for example, Jehovah's Witness believes he's really the incarnation of Michael, the archangel. Not God at all, but an angel. Well, why would an angel have to die on the cross for me? And how could an angel possibly uh, represent or understand humanity in the way that Christ did? Mormons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but their definition of Son is very different than the biblical definition. Son of God, brother of Lucifer, on an equal with Satan. Well, this would be Mormon theology. And not God, a created being. Jesus, let me make this clear, Jesus is not a created being. As we just read in Colossians, by Him all things were created. Amen. He is creator, not created. Now, 
Jesus was the one, by the way, who asked the defining question of our faith. He's the one who set it up. And people who say, well, you know, I read these great words of Jesus, and I think he was a great teacher. He doesn't leave you that option. Well, I think he was a great man. He doesn't leave you just that option. I think he may have been even a prophet. He doesn't leave you just that option. Because it was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, to his disciples, who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's the one that needs to be answered. Now, we can, we can go all around in talking to people about Jesus and trying to be evangel- evangelical, evangelists, trying to bring people to church. And, and a lot of Christians get confused and begin to think that it's about getting people to church. It's not about getting the people to church. It's about introducing people to Jesus. And the question, the question that everybody needs to answer, who do you say that I am? What do you believe about Jesus? That's the place to start. Gail Irwin once was talking about this, and he talked about being in a, in a restaurant with some, with some kids, and, and they were talking at their table, and, and they were listening to some Christian music that was on the radio, and the waitress came over, and, and Gail Irwin said, oh, so are you, is this establishment Christian-owned? And she said, I don't think so. And he said, well, it's Christian music playing. And she said, oh, really? I'll get the boss. So she got the boss, and he came out, and they got into this discussion. Uh, the boss began asking questions like, well, what about evolution? And what about the pygmies? What about the dinosaurs? And for each question he asked, Gail Irwin kept coming back with, I I don't know much about the dinosaurs, but I do know about Jesus. I don't necessarily have all the answers scientifically to refute evolution and to debate that, but I can tell you about Jesus. You see, ultimately, all the questions that people tend to ask, especially who are trying to keep Christianity at arm's length, the questions are all dodges to the question that matters. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? And how I answer this question is everything. Simon Peter answered Matthew 16, verse 16, and said, You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, Peter, you're not smart enough to figure this out on your own. But my Father who is in heaven, he revealed it to you. You understand that I'm the Christ, Peter, because God told you that. Because divinity showed you the divine. Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. The purpose of all prophecy. Revelation 19.10 Jesus is the the testimony of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy, prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Jesus is the point. Biblical prophecy is not here to tickle our ears or give us some sense about what's to come, although it will do that. Biblical prophecy is to point us to Jesus Christ. Every prophecy of the Old Testament is aimed in that direction. Why? Because without Jesus, there is no heaven. Without Jesus, there is no getting home. Without Jesus, you will not make your way back to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Is it any, can, you, can it be any more clear than that? No man comes to God. If you want to go to God, I'm the way. It's through me. It's not through Buddha. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through Krishna. It's not through any of these other you know, paths where people will say there are multiple paths and they all are going to end up in the same sea. They probably will, but the one path that's going to end up in heaven is the one that goes through Jesus. He is the center of our faith. Now, understanding that and remembering and realizing the revelation is not just a story of fantastic future events, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, as verse 1 of chapter 1 tells us, 
we understand John as he begins to write the first part of the divine outline. He writes down in chapter 1 the things which he had seen. You remember the divine outline? Where is the divine outline? Where can you find that? Chapter 1, verse 19. Say that with me. Chapter 1, verse 19. One more time. Chapter 1, verse 19. Make sure that's clear in your mind. It's the key that unlocks this book, the divine outline. Let's read it together. Want to read it with me? Here we go. Verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. A three-part outline. The things which you have seen. We talked about this the first week. It's the person of Jesus Christ as shown to us, as revealed in chapter 1. The things which are. That's the church age as revealed in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after these things, beginning with chapter 4 and running to the end of the book, it's the things that will take place after after the church age. What's the church age, Rick? We'll get there. That's chapter 2. Hang with me. We're close. So before we get to the person of Jesus tonight, I want to talk a little bit about the person of John. John the Apostle. You need to understand that when the revelation was given, the early Christians were under intense, intense persecution. We talked a bit about that last week. Nero. Nero was the emperor from Rome who was absolutely insane. He was crazy, a mass murderer of Christians. He was a horrifying ruler in Rome. But following Nero came another man named Vespasian. He wasn't a whole lot better. And then Vespasian had a son who rose to the throne following him. Vespasian's son was more dangerous than Nero was. Why? Because Vespasian's son was sane and cunning. And he was gunning for the leadership of the church. He wanted them all to be killed, all to be taken out. This man led the siege against the Jews and against Jerusalem in AD 70, destroying it, burning the temple to the ground. And after becoming emperor, Titus Flavius Domitian set himself against the Christians. He ordered the deaths of of many martyrs, and Rome had already seen martyrs' death. James, John's brother, the writer of the book, his brother was run through by a sword. That's how James died. Peter, you may have heard, tradition tells us, died crucified upside down, for he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified like his Lord. Paul, beheaded in Rome. Thomas had his brains beaten out with a club. Following Christ, giving your life up to the Lord. Be cautious when someone tells you that the Christian life is all peaches and cream. It's all rosy. It's all good from here on out, man. You you come to Jesus and it's going to be perfect. That kind of teaching unnerves me. Because for anyone who's ever had tribulation or trial or suffering in their lives, if you're a Christian, then you start asking the question, well, maybe I just don't believe. Maybe I'm just not a good person. You think Thomas thought that as they were beating him to death? Maybe I got it wrong. Absolutely not. We'll talk more about that. But Titus Flavius Domitian set himself against the leadership of the church and finally personally ordered the death of the Apostle John. He ordered that John be taken and boiled alive in oil. We will boil him alive to death. You know what? It didn't work. Now, I don't exactly know how it didn't work. I don't exactly know what John looked like after the fact, but he did not die. Apparently, the hot oil was nothing against the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
more powerful than anything even the ruler of the world at the time could dish out. Domitian failed in that task. So finally, well, he won't burn to death. He won't fry in oil. Let's just get him out of the way. And so they exiled John to a little island, a little island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. Patmos was a rock island. Patmos at the time, now I haven't seen it in this day, but at the time was told to be a rock island, no trees, barren, desolate, hot, a place where basically men were sent to die. And John was sent there, and verse 9 tells us, he writes, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I just love how God works. Domitian sends John to get rid of him. And John ends up getting the most powerful book in the whole entire New Testament. Domitian thought this will quiet him down. Instead, it ignited the church in a way no other writing at the time had. It encouraged Christians to stand up to persecution in a way they, they weren't yet. I mean, they had been going through persecution, but to get this and to read of the victory of Jesus and the awesome power that he wields and the fact that he still is on the throne and knew what was going on in the church. Wow! John got that because of Domitian's exile. I don't think Domitian had a clue what he was doing when he sent John over there. A couple of things you might want to jot down about John. Number one, John was a fellow partaker. A fellow partaker. I love how he says this. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker. I'm one of you. What a great perspective. This hundred-year-old shepherd, last of the living apostles, who walked with Jesus, who was one of the greats, one of the original twelve. I mean, if anyone had a right to lord it over people, it was John. You, You may recall John and James, his brother, had a conversation with Jesus about this. They said, Lord, listen, we just have a favor to ask. When you come in your kingdom, can I sit on the right and maybe James on the left? And James said, no, no, I want the right. You can have the left. And they're arguing about it. And the other ten apostles, they got all fuming about it. Who are you? How dare you say that that you get to to sit on one of the sides of Jesus and his kingdom? That's not fair. I, I want to be the greatest. Well, I'm the greatest. And this big argument among these 12 godly men ensued. I'm the greatest. No, I am. And Jesus made a comment that I am convinced stuck with John to the writing of this book. The, the Gentiles, they lord it over each other. Not so with you. Anyone who wants to be one of my great ones, you serve. Be the least of all. And so John is able to write as great as his experience, his life, the power of just who he was and who he had been with. I'm your brother. I'm your fellow partaker. I am with you. What are you with us in, John? I am with you in the Christian epic. I am with you in the journey that we're all walking together. We're all sharing this together. And I'll pause to just say this. It is so easy to look at pastors differently. And and I've shared this before. Don't do that. Jackie called me the other night. She's going to shoot me for even mentioning her name. I always always do this to you, don't I? She calls me up and, and, and actually it was really sweet the way she said it. But she said, hi, Pastor Rick. And I'm like, Pastor Rick. I mean, I've known Jackie for, what, five years now? When are we going to get by the pastor? <laughs> and she was, it was a term of endearment in the way she said it, but people would come up and say, Pastor Rick, and you, you know, you know, I'm just, we're all walking this journey. I'm just the guy who's standing up here doing the teaching right now, but that makes no difference as far as the Lord's concerned. If you are washing the blood of Jesus, we're in this together, period. We all struggle together. 
We all face trials. In fact, John even says there are three specific things that he faces with the people, that he's walking through with the people. Number one, he says the tribulation. John, as a fellow partaker, says, I am with you in the tribulation. I wonder if he wrote, as he wrote that, if his hand hurt because of some of the skin that maybe had gotten burnt off by the hot oil. He could say, I'm with you in the tribulation. I'm on this rock because of the tribulation. I'm lonely, I'm desolate, I'm stuck out here, I don't have a person to talk to, save the Lord, which is wonderful. But I'm with you in the tribulation. Again, the church was going through a big time. They could not have received a better word than that of the victorious revelation. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, a verse that I believe puts to rest all of the happy-go-lucky preaching that goes on in so many churches. The, it just is going to get better from here kind of talk. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can count on it. I'm telling you this because I'm assuming tonight you're a mature believer. You've got some sense of the Lord. And I'm telling you right now, loving Jesus, following Jesus does not make life easier. In fact, oftentimes it ruins your life in the most wonderful way. What, what better way to have your life just trashed than to follow Jesus? And I mean that in a great way because no matter how bad the tribulation is, and you see this with John himself... Stuck out there, isolated, alone, surrounded only if there was anyone else even on Patmos at the time. These were all men on death row. And John's like, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you in the tribulation. You know, the, the uh, persecution at the time was so bad that people in the church, there were those specifically in Thessalonica who thought maybe the great tribulation had already started. There was a letter circulating at the time. When Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, he wrote it in response to a false letter that was circulating in Thessalonica telling the people at that church, the tribulation's already come. The rapture's happened. You're left behind. You're stuck. You're here now. and We just got to go through this. And people were freaking out. So Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. I don't know if this one's up there. Yeah, it is. It is. Good. Good. By the way, there's a ton of verses tonight, so just don't get scared. Just jot them down and look them up later. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes and he says the following. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in Scripture is that phrase, Old Testament phrase mostly, but also used in the New Testament, referring to the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. And he says, don't get shaken. Don't lose your composure. Just because someone sent a letter to you, I want you to understand, Paul says, this is how the day of the Lord is to come. He goes on in verse 3 and says, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul gives very clear teaching. Hey, the tribulation is not going to start until first the apostasy happens. And second, the man of lawlessness is revealed. What's the apostasy? Some of you know that the word apostasy or to be an apostate is to fall away. But what's interesting in the definition of this word apostasy in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, apostasy has two meanings. It means both in the Greek to fall away, it also means to be pulled up. 
And so at the same time, and I believe we see it in the world today, there is apostasy creeping into the church, false teaching, the happy slappy teaching I was talking about before, prosperity gospel, so many different things that honestly are heretical when compared to scripture. The apostasy, the falling away, we see happening. We see it beginning to happen. Does that mean we're about to be taken? Oh, I hope so, but I'm not saying it is. But it means a falling away. It also means a being taken out, a being pulled up. It can mean both. So the bottom line Paul is saying to the people in in Thessalonica is, you're not going through the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation can't happen until first the apostasy happens. And then the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed. And then the tribulation begins. We'll have deeper explanation of this as we get further into Revelation. But John is a fellow partaker in the tribulation. He's also a fellow partaker in the kingdom. He says the kingdom. I'm with you in the tribulation. I'm with you in the kingdom. What do you mean, John? It's the place where we're headed. It's where we're going. I am with you on this journey to the kingdom. And some will say, wrongly so, that the kingdom is a metaphor for the church. That we are in the kingdom right now. Some will say, and the position is called a millennial, that the thousand year reign of Christ mentioned in Revelation 20 is all about metaphorically the church. It's where we are. We're in the thousand year reign. We are in the kingdom right now. And that's hogwash. Well, Rick, that's a little strong. I mean, at least allow someone their opinion. I'll tell you why it's hogwash. Because in the millennium, in that thousand year reign, in the kingdom, Satan is bound. Anybody think Satan is bound right now looking at the world we live in? Does he seem bound? I mean, come on. That alone blows the whole position away. The kingdom. I'm with you. In the kingdom that is coming. Daniel chapter 7 verse 27 describes the kingdom like this. In a time after the annihilation of Antichrist, when, quote, the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions or nations will serve and obey him. Do we see that happening in the world today? Then the kingdom has not come. The kingdom is not here. If it hasn't happened, the kingdom has not arrived yet. But John says, I'm with you. I am your fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. The perseverance, that is the power to hang tough. I'm with you. By the way, where do we get the perseverance to deal with tribulation? The answer is in tribulation. Tribulation itself, struggles, strife, persecution, challenges in life bring about, give us perseverance. That's where perseverance is cultivated. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 Paul says, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that the tribulation, the tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, John, our brother, our fellow partaker, just one of us. That's what he's saying. I love that about John. But more, John was also... Also, John was a fervent proclaimer of the word. A fervent proclaimer of the word. John could probably relate very well to the prophet Jeremiah who wrote in Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9, If I say I will not remember him, 
or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot endure it. I can't handle it. It's here. i got to let it out. Which is why I go so long when we're teaching. That's why tonight's probably going to be a good two hours. No, I'm kidding. It won't be that bad. But you get the word in you. And, and have you been in that place where you're talking to someone and you're just, ah, i got to tell you. i got to let you know. And that's John. He tells us very clearly that's why he's on Patmos. The word put him where he was. It was God's word that is to blame for, God, for John being on Patmos. He says, I, I'm here because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Man, if I wasn't out telling people about Jesus, if I wasn't sharing the word, I wouldn't be on this rock. I'd be hanging in Ephesus with my buds. I wouldn't be here burning up on this seemingly God-forsaken island. The word put him there. 60 to 70 years prior to John receiving the revelation, the Jewish Sanhedrin stared down a couple of young disciples. Guys who had followed Jesus, walked with him, fled from him at the time of the crucifixion, but were restored and headed into ministry. And they commanded these two disciples to stop teaching in Jesus' name. I love what they said. Acts chapter 4 verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And John never stopped proclaiming. Seventy years later, he is still in trouble for teaching the word of God. He still can't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. This man knew who Christ was and lived for him and was a fervent proclaimer of the word but gang, the word not only put John where he was, it also made him who he was. The word had so altered John, it had taken this one-time son of thunder, as Jesus affectionately called him. He and James, Boanerges, sons of thunder. Why? Because they wanted to call down lightning and strike down an entire group of people who weren't following Jesus. Can we just destroy him now? We've seen the miracle. Just go, come on, this will be great, Lord. He goes, Boanerges, lighten up. You know, sons of thunder, chill out. And he called them sons of thunder after that. And I'm sure all the other apostles laughed about it and they enjoyed it. But this son of thunder, this son of thunder became a giant of faith. Romans 10, 17 tells us how the faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if you want to stand tall in this world, if you want to have answer when someone says to you, what do you really believe? I love this. Um, I can't say who. But a politician visited a home of one of our members recently. And this particular po politician who's running for office in a neighboring town um, went to, <laughs> came to the home to talk about politics. And this particular uh, person who goes to the bridge, she began asking him what he believed. And of course he starts doing the typical politician political slop. Well, I believe in this and that and the other. Said, no, no, no. What do you believe? What, what, what do you believe spiritually? <laughs> Which floored him. He had no answer for that, you know, and basically went away after some gibberish about what he believed, which really wasn't anything, and came back the next day, came back to her house, knocked on the door, and she opened the door, and he handed her a little card, and he goes, well, this will probably explain a little better what I believe, sheepishly, because he wasn't even sure what he believed. Are you ever like that? Someone says, hey, you go out to that barn church thing, what, what, what do you believe? What, what's going on? What do you... What do you believe? And you go, where's that card? I've got that little card. I'll tell you what I believe. The word 
the Word will make you like John. John knew the Word. It was the Word in John that burned in him like Jeremiah, that fire in his bones. And because John knew the Word, he was able to proclaim that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John was full of the Word. The Word put him on Patmos, but the Word made him who he was. If you want to stand for the kingdom, man, be in the Word. It is the way to do it. And I'm not talking about a month, and I'm not talking about a year. I'm talking about pour your life into the Word. Ask that God may make the book alive to you, and that you live to the book. And I guarantee you will be like John, a giant of faith. Giant of faith, very small in your opinion of yourself. That's John. John was, number three, also a faithful pastor. Faithful pastor. Verse 10, it says, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John, the faithful pastor, was in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day. A couple things to note about this faithful pastor. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. Now, people kind of make an assumption, oh, that's Sunday. He was having church. John's on Patmos and he's having church. Did he have a little communion cups and a little tray for himself? I don't know. But, you know, Sunday, the Lord's Day, he's at church, right? Not necessarily. Because the way it's phrased here, where he says the Lord's Day, yes, yeah, talked about Paul uh, says that the church met. It says in Acts that they met on the first day of the week, and Paul talks about saving up tithes and offerings to be collected on the first day of the week when the church gathers. And there's there's certainly uh, impetus to believe that the church met early on on Sundays. Now, some of you may have heard that Constantine did that when the church became the, the religion of the state. That was when it became Sunday, but 150 years before that, a man by the name of Tertullian wrote that the church met on the first day of the week, on what they called the Lord's Day. But I'm not sure that that's what we're talking about here. Could have been, it's possible, but this phrase, the Lord's Day, may also be the day of the Lord. What do you mean by that? Joel chapter 2 verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Now, now stick with me. Because just a few minutes ago we read in the letter from Paul where he said, The day of the Lord is not going to come unless the apostasy happens first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Remember? Had that happened for John? No. So how could it be other, anything other than just a Sunday? How could it be the day of the Lord, which by the way speaks of the tribulation? How is that possible? It's possible if John wasn't having a vision at all. It's possible if John literally was transported by God forward to see the actual event called the tribulation. That when John was in the Spirit, he was caught up in the Spirit to be on the day of the Lord. To be present and see the tribulation taking place. Do you think that's what's happening, Rick? I don't know. I have no idea. Possible. It may have just been Sunday, the Lord's Day, but it may also have been that John was transported. Oh, that sounds a little nutty. I mean, does God do that kind of thing? Well, Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven and experiencing that. You know, some theologians would argue this point. I, I think that Paul was caught up. I think, honestly, that it probably happened in one of his intense persecutions, maybe, maybe where they had stoned him and he died and was caught up 
his spirit to the third heaven and, and, and God said, alright, we're going to give you some training, now go back. <laughs> but this is so good. Hmm. Well, I'll let you guys work that one out on your own. The Lord's Day or the Day of the Lord. But John, John, whatever you believe about that, John was in the Spirit. This is great. He wasn't in a cathedral. He wasn't in a church building. He wasn't even in a barn with other believers. He was on a desolate, treeless, barren, isolated rock. But he was in the Spirit. Russ and I were talking just a, a little while ago, and we were talking about the verse that says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. And so Russ said, Well, <laughs> do you have to have two or three together to have him there? No. No. John was in the Spirit. John, all by himself, sitting on a little rock. And if there were other prisoners on Patmos, they must have thought he was a kook. Or they came to know the Lord and were saved along with other people. But the Bible tells us, John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth, not in comfortable chairs, not in finely carpeted buildings, not even in a barn that's just warm enough to, for me to be comfortable. It's funny to me now to hear people, by the way, make comments about, ooh, it was just cold in the barn the other day. And I think, you weren't here the first winter. <laughs> That's cold. That's cold. But Joe, as you were saying before we started, man, it, it, it so helps us to keep the focus where it belongs. When you're sitting on metal folding chairs, a little wood building, and when the wind really blows, we kind of go, oh, okay. <laughs> and forgive me if it sounds like boasting. I don't boast on this barn. This is a barn that was built to hold hay and take care of horses. It's nothing to be proud of. And please, don't go around telling people, yeah, I worship in a barn. <laughs> no, wrong attitude. <laughs> no, you tell people, I worship in the Spirit. That's where I worship. Where's it located? Wherever I am, man, I'm worshiping in the Spirit. That's where I go. I am in the Spirit. Jude 20, Jude says, pray in the Spirit. Be in the Spirit. John doesn't have a band, he doesn't have singers, no worldly noises whatsoever, save the waves crashing on the edges of Patmos. John was caught up. Just John in the Spirit. It reminds me of the song, uh, By Mercy Me, Word of God Speak, we sing from time to time, where, where we sing, I'm finding myself in the midst of you, beyond the music, beyond the noise, and all that I want is to be with you, and in the quiet, to hear your voice. John heard his voice like the sound of a trumpet. Okay, it was huge. It was loud and it stirred him up. Did you hear that? <laughs> Did it wake you up a little bit? But I wonder something here. John, John hears this voice like the sound of a trumpet. What was John praying? We know he was in the spirit. What was this, this pastor? What was this pastor praying? And I think he was praying for the church. I don't think John had hands folded on his knees going, God, get me off of this rock, please. I have had enough. I think he was praying for Ephesus and Smyrna, the church at Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I think he was praying for the church. This is what this pastor did. This fellow partaker, this fervent proclaimer, this faithful pastor... It's claimed for the church. How do you know that? Because of verse 11. 
the response to John's prayer is, okay, John, you're praying for the church. I'm giving you something for the church. Jesus immediately answers John's prayer and says, write in a book what you see. Send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Paul planted the church in Ephesus, the Bible tells us. Paul planted, but John pastored. John was Pastor John at the church of Ephesus. That was his home church. That's where he landed before Patmos and after Patmos. Church tradition tells us when he was released from Patmos, and he was, that he went back to Ephesus, and that's where he remained the rest of his life. There are two tombs in Ephesus, both claiming, by the way, to be the tomb of John. So there's a good chance one of those is probably the right John. But it was in Ephesus that he did his ministry, that he pastored. But also, Ephesus, like these other seven churches, was on this Roman postal route. And John would make his way from church to church, sharing the message. What message is that? I told some folks this morning it was, little children love each other. He would get called up from the back of the church. And I love this story. He'd be sitting there and the people were all gathered around and they'd say, John the Apostle's here. John, do you have a word from the Lord? Something the Lord can share with our congregation. We need to hear from the Lord. And John, you're the closest. And so John would slowly, this old man, make his way up to the front and turn around. And and these people would be sitting waiting to gather just these fantastic words. Maybe a story that they hadn't read in Scripture or something they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. And John would say, little children love each other. And he'd go sit down. And tradition tells us that there were a few people who got a little tired of this. Maybe John's a little old. (laughs) Maybe he doesn't know that he's preached this sermon a few times before. (laughs) Maybe it's time we have this doting old man just sit in the back and we'll pat his little head when we go by and say, Good to see you, John. And they asked him, John, why is it you keep saying the same thing over and over and over? And in essence, this is my paraphrase, John said, When you get it, I'll stop saying it. Little children love each other. This wonderful pastor, this proclaimer, this fellow partaker, set about now to write down the things which he had seen. And here it is, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Okay, we can't see what he saw yet. I've got to tell you something else. This is interesting to me. I turned to see the voice. Normally it's turned to see the speaker. Normally you turn to see who is talking to you. He turned to see the voice. The phrasing is interesting. And I just kind of got to thinking about this. And I realized this is not the only time this has happened. Exodus chapter 3 verse 3. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw, listen to this. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush. That's a great story. I won't go into it tonight, but you remember Moses at the burning bush. Moses decides he wants to go see what's going on. God's got the bush burning. Watch this, angels. This is great. We're going to get his attention. He lights the bush on fire. It's flaming, but it's still nice and lush and green. And Moses sees that. And Moses in that moment has an opportunity to make a decision. Well, that's weird. And head about his business. Or, i got to see what's going on here. And so Moses went. When God, the Bible says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, then he called to Moses. 
Alright Moses, now you're paying attention. But he waited. He waited until Moses turned aside. Daniel chapter 9 verse 3. The book of Daniel tells us, he says, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I think it's interesting, John and Daniel and Moses have a lot in common, these three men. Number one, they were all old. They were all old guys, Moses 80, Daniel probably close to 90. And, of course, John nearing a hundred. All old men, when they turned aside to look, these old men were wise. You know, let's, let's try and develop sensitivity and understanding that people who have the crown of gray on their heads probably know some things the rest of us don't. These men were wise men. They also were all three exiles. Moses, when he was called to the burning bush, was an exile. He had to flee from Egypt for his life. He had been in exile for 40 years. He couldn't go back to the place where he had been raised. The people who were supposedly his people who he didn't understand real well yet. But he was in exile. Daniel was in Babylonian captivity. He was in exile. And John, of course, was exiled on Patmos. All three of these men were wise old men, but they were exiles. They were outsiders in the world. They also were all three concerned about a flock. Daniel was concerned about Israel as he, as he prayed. And by the way, if you haven't read Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, the last few verses of the chapter, is the most powerful prophecy probably in the entire Old Testament and is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation, as we'll see later. But the whole rest of the chapter is the most amazing prayer of a man of faith. A man praying for Israel, praying for the flock. Moses, Moses was concerned with the flock. Bunch of sheep. He was out caring for his flock. And God turned him aside to a different flock. Again, the children of Israel. John, again, I believe, was praying for the church. But all three of these men had one other thing in common. They all three turned aside to give their attention to the Lord. They all three turned aside to look. When they heard the sound or saw the sight, they didn't just go on about their busy lives. I just don't have time for you right now, Lord. I don't have time to go to Bible study. I don't have time for worship. I don't have time to, to sit down and pray this morning. Got to get out the door. Pop-tarts are interesting. <laughs> no, think about this for a minute. Pop-tarts. You know where I'm going with this, Corey. Pop-tarts on the Pop-tart package actually give microwave instructions. As if the toaster is not fast enough. <laughs> that you got to nuke these things and get out the door that much quicker. I'm thinking if you have to do that, you probably ought to be checking your priorities. Microwave Pop-Tarts are amazing. I don't know why I get off on these things. But these guys, all three, all of these old men, gave their attention to the Lord. And because they gave their attention to the Lord, Moses, Moses received the call to go back to Egypt and lead the people out because he turned aside to look. Because he gave God his attention. Daniel, had Daniel not given his attention to the Lord, we would never have received the amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. It was because Daniel was praying that Gabriel was dispatched to get to him as quick as possible. In fact, the Bible tells us that while Daniel was praying, while he was praying, Gabriel showed up. Now, if you take the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 in the Hebrew and speak it out, it takes about three minutes. So it was three minutes 
that it took from Gabriel to get from heaven to where Daniel was. And then it tells us that when Daniel finished praying, he looked up and Gabriel had been standing there for a while. The indication is that he was kind of rocking on his heels going, as soon as you're done praying, Daniel, we can have a chat. God responding immediately because, because, Daniel turned aside and gave his attention to the Lord. Had John not turned to see the voice, giving his attention to the Lord, we would not have the revelation. There were not a whole lot of other things to do on Patmos, but he could have just been swooning in the heat. He could have just been laid out on a rock going, Jesus, just take me now. I'm done. I'm a hundred years old and I'm on a rock and I just had a bad experience with an oil bath. Take me. But he was focused. He was in the Spirit. And he turned aside to see the voice that was speaking with him. Well, why pause and consider just those few words? Because God reveals his will to those who are listening. To those who are attentive to his voice. To those who are taking the time to, while at least the Pop-Tarts are cooking, to pray. <laughs> and preferably a little longer than that. Revelation 2.7 And Jesus will say it over and over in the two chapters where he speaks to the church. He who has an ear, let him hear. And if you will use your ear, if you will turn aside and listen to me, I will give you revelation. I will show you things. I'll talk to you. Are you listening?